Father, I, we do thank you for this time. I thank you for your word that teaches us, that convicts us of our sin. You pour out your grace through it. You remind us we belong to you. For everything in it pertaining to life and godliness, it's all that we need, and I thank you for it. So I pray this morning that you would be our teacher. I pray that you would speak to our hearts, <clears throat> that you would reveal your word, you would encourage us, you would correct us. Uh, Lord, you know what each woman needs this morning, and I pray and ask you to give it to her. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I don't have a joke. But I tried, and they were all so bad I gave up. <clears throat> so we're just going to dig right in. Uh, the book of James is where the rubber meets the road in our Christian faith. And on every page, James challenges us to examine our faith and our lives to see if they're genuine. And the standards that he sets are based on the practical realities of life so we can clearly evaluate where we stand. You know, it is impossible to study this book and walk away unchanged. So what does genuine faith look like? Well, we've learned so far that genuine faith perseveres through God-ordained trials. It demonstrates obedience to God's word. And we are to prove ourselves doers, not merely hearers. Genuine faith is impartial in its love toward others. It doesn't show an attitude of personal favoritism. It produces good works and demonstrates practical wisdom in what's that is gentle and peaceable in nature. And today, we're going to see the intimacy with God, humility in our relationships, and submission to the Lord's will also reflect genuine faith or authentic faith. So at first glance, it seems that James is starting a new line of thought in chapter 4. But he's really dealing with the same situation as the closing verses of chapter 3. He's clearly described two types of wisdom. Earthly and demonic wisdom sets itself against God's truth and results in bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, and every evil thing. Uh, heavenly wisdom, or wisdom that comes from above, is pure, it's peaceable, it's reasonable, it's full of mercy, and it produces peace and righteousness. And James is going to return in the first verse of chapter 4 by asking, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So the relationships that James is describing are not unbelievers relating to unbelievers. He's talking about the relationships of Christians with each other. And the words that he uses are frighteningly strong. Quarrels, conflicts, wars, murder. James chooses the vocabulary of war to express controversies and quarrels and animosities and bad feeling among Christians, not because there's no other way of saying it, but because there is no other way of expressing the horror of it. He has seen the relationships of the church through the eyes of God, and he speaks of the fact that it's happening and seems to be a common practice. So it's a pretty depressing commentary on church life that James uh, uh, needs to write this to a people who are scattered, and he makes the same general comment on all alike. 
So how do these hostilities and wars begin? Well, James tells us that there are fights among you because of passions that are at war within you. And when he says that passions are at war in your members, he means within one person. And James points to each one of us. And what he says is not flattering. Selfish passions cause an internal war as our desire to serve Christ conflicts with our desire to serve ourselves. Inwardly, we're like an army ready for the bugle call that declares war and will send us into battle against anyone who stands in the way of us getting what we want. And James goes so far as to use the word murder. Now, while it's unlikely that his readers were guilty of literal murder, the language of warfare and violence aptly describe the strife, acrimony, and misrepresentation that occur when people use words to gain supremacy. Uh, one Bible teacher that I, whose commentary helped me tremendously, Alex Motyer, just tremendously, says, James's language sounds so extravagant, so exaggerated to our ears that we feel we must positively refuse to see our small-time disagreements and occasional squabbles as meriting such a description. But if we take this view, we only show how imperfectly our thoughts have been brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Was Jesus exaggerating when he called hatred in the heart murder? It is we who diminish the importance of right relationships, not the scriptures which exaggerate the importance of quarrels. We smile with the wrong sort of tolerance over a touchy and difficult brother or sister. We shrug our shoulders over two who have fallen out. But we should not be tolerant of war or shrug our shoulders over fighting. I thought that was real profound. Well, James then moves on to the believer's relationship with God, and all is far from well because our pursuit of selfish desires becomes so severe that we can't bring ourselves to pray. James says you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so you may spend it on your pleasures. Somehow the flow of prayer is no longer operating, and we are out of sorts with God. Now, he told us in chapter 1 that if anyone lacks wisdom, he can ask God, who gives to all generously. God's response, though, is conditioned upon those asking, not being double-minded and unstable, following God one day and ignoring him the next. Here, James says that we don't receive because our motives are completely wrong and wicked. So prayer itself is defiled by the self-centered heart so that we either must cleanse our hearts or stop our prayers. That's the dilemma. And it's to this very need for cleansing the heart that James is leading us in verses 6 through 10. But before he does, he makes it crystal clear what our self-centered passions really do to our relationship with God and what Scripture says about it. So let's think for a minute along the diagnostic path along which he's led us. The good life is the product of heavenly wisdom. Worldly demonic wisdom gives rise to selfish ambition, jealousy, and every evil thing. So our public problems arise from private causes in our hearts. And if the harvest of righteousness and this peace in the church is to be achieved, it can only happen when we have deep transformation within the individual heart. So in verse 4, James puts the entire problem in one unforgettable word, adulteresses. He says they're like wives who have betrayed their marriage vows. They're married to Jesus, but they've had an affair with other gods. 
Now, when the Lord chose a people for himself, he was like an ardent young man pursuing and claiming his bride. God's election or choice of his people to be his very own is his deepest love in action. And it was his desire before the foundation of the world that we would have the richest and most intimate union with him. James sounds like the Old Testament prophets who charged Israel with adultery. And just as Israel sought to worship both the Lord and the Canaanite gods, Christians attempt to pursue both God and the world. And James doesn't say this is merely vacillation. He calls it adultery. He continues, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. See, our real problem is not that we've lied to ourselves, but we've lied to God about our devotion to him. We tell the Lord that we love him, but proceed to use worldly wisdom and scheming to get our own way or the recognition we feel we deserve. We are fooling ourselves, ladies, if we think that God doesn't see the motives of our hearts. And by promoting our own self-interest, we become friends of the world and the Lord's enemies. And our problem, in fact, is a spiritual one. How do we get right with God and stay right with him? And that's what, what this is about. Now, we need to be very careful here. Because being the enemy of God has strong overtones of severing of relationships, undoing of treaties, and returning to an unsafe state of affairs. And in the most fundamental sense, this simply cannot be. Peace with God was achieved by the blood of Christ's cross. We were once God's enemies, but we have been reconciled. This reconciliation was achieved solely by the will and determination of God. He did it. He declared peace, and he will never undeclare peace regardless of how fickle my desire and determination to live in peace with him may be. Sadly, many of us who are Christians can live very carnal lives, and there is a very real choice that we must make because whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And we must not deceive ourselves into thinking that we can live in intimate fellowship with the Lord when the focus of our hearts is fulfilling our selfish desires and getting our own way. James makes it clear that intimacy with God is a hallmark of genuine faith. Well, he brings his indictment of worldly wisdom and selfish ambition to its climax with a probing question in verse 5. Or do you think that the spirit, the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he's made to dwell in us. And just like that, we are plunged into confusion. Not only is the apparent indication that he's quoting scripture a problem, but the translation of the sentence also poses difficulties. And the first issue is that no verse in the Bible says exactly what James refers to. Most commentators hold that James is not quoting one passage, but rather he's summarizing biblical theology in a general sense. But next, we must address the translation of he jealously desires the spirit which he's made to dwell in us. I mean, this was very confusing. And the Greek language does not differentiate between lower and uppercase letters, so it's really hard to know if the word spirit is talking about the spirit of a man or the Holy Spirit himself. So scholars have analyzed, they've translated this verse in several different ways. And one way to look at this would be, God jealously yearns for the devotion of our spirit, which he put in us. Another way we could look at it would be the Holy Spirit within us jealously yearns for the full devotion of our heart. And yet a third way would be the human spirit which indwells you yearns to envy. So regardless of the specific rendering that you accept, the point is that God's people are indwelt by his spirit and there is no way 
in which his presence is compatible with those sinful yearnings and self-interest which are destructive to the peace of the church. James must be understood as underlining that as either how sinful our human spirits are, notwithstanding that the Lord gave them to us, or that these sinful impulses remain and may even predominate, notwithstanding that the Holy Spirit now indwells us. But either way, we must look to God for fresh and greater aid. See, James does more than diagnose the human problem. He announces the solution. And that's in verse 6, my favorite verse in this chapter. But he gives a greater grace. And what comfort there is for us in this verse, because God is tirelessly on our side. He never falters in respect of our needs. He always has more grace at hand for us. Whatever we may forfeit when we put ourselves first, we cannot forfeit our salvation, for there's always more grace. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative towards us never stops, and his generosity knows no limits. He gives more grace. So, James, having pointed out God's sufficiency, points to man's responsibility in verses 7 to 10, where there are no less than 10 commands to obey. James doesn't see the indwelling spirit as a means of instant sanctification. Wouldn't that be nice? Nor does he see the inexhaustible supply of grace sweeping us along to an effortless holiness. The benefits of grace and more grace are ours along the road of obedience and more obedience. And the God who says, here is my grace to receive, says in the same breath, here are my commands to obey. So the question is, who can receive his grace? Well, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So those who are proud cannot receive God's grace. Pride could be summarized as an attitude of self-sufficiency, self-importance, and self-exaltation in relation to God. Toward others, it's an attitude of contempt or even indifference. Toward uh, God resists the proud. Okay, so in the Greek, the word resist means to set against in martial array. In other words, God goes to war against the proud. So if pride causes you to exalt yourself, you are painting a target on your back and inviting God to open fire. And he will. And I've been there and done that. And I know you have too. God will not share his glory, and he will ultimately destroy pride wherever he finds it, whether among angels or humans, believers or unbelievers. It was pride that caused Lucifer to be cast out of heaven and Adam and Eve to be cast out of Eden. Pride will be... Oh, sorry. I didn't think I was moving that much. Pride will be our, uh, hold on. Okay, pride will be our undoing if we tolerate it in our lives. The danger of pride is a sobering reality that we each need to ponder. And the question is why? Well, one Bible teacher said God hates pride because pride separates us from him. It quenches his spirit in us and it prevents his life in our hearts from flowing out into our lives. Pride not only builds walls between God and us, it also puts a barrier between us and others. It constantly brings contention, division, and strife. And Satan will do anything he can to get us to trade in our humility and intimate experiential knowledge of God, which we gain through life experience and God-ordained trials for mere intellectual knowledge of God. However, 
God's grace is available and unending supply to those who are humble. So to, to be humble means you don't have an exalted view of yourself. You see yourself as God sees you. You know, we're small, we're finite, we're dependent, we're limited in intelligence and ability, we're prone to doubt and sin, our lives are but a vapor. But we're also God's children, created, loved, and redeemed by God's grace alone. And he gifts each of us with unique abilities, resources, and advantages which are to be used for his glory. Truly, humility is our greatest friend because it increases our hunger for God's word and opens our heart to his spirit. It leads to intimacy with God who dwells with him who is of, of a contrite and lowly spirit. Well, James makes it clear we must choose between these two ways of life. And Christians must have no doubt in their minds whose side they're on. And that's why James tells us in the first of his commands, uh, submit therefore to the Lord. The word submit in scripture doesn't mean to sit back and wait for God to issue orders. It certainly includes obedience to commands. But you know what? We also submit when we arrange our lives under Christ's lordship. We obey when we do God's will. We submit when we obey a command that seems hard or strange. And such submission signifies we've really humbled ourselves before the Lord. I don't like this, but I'm going to do it anyway because of who you are. The next words, resist the devil and he will flee from you, begin to explain how we submit to God. And James links submission to the Lord with resistance of the devil. So to submit to God is to order our lives under his authority, but to resist means we oppose, we fight back, and we take a stand against the devil's authority. So to oppose Satan in the context that we're talking about in James means we resist the temptation to fight each other or covet what somebody else has because this is about relationships in the church. Paul, but the Apostle Paul also tells us that we are to flee sexual immorality, idolatry, and the evil desires of youth. So another way that we resist the devil is by fleeing from the temptation to sin. So stop putting yourself in situations where it's easy to give in to sin. The battle against the cookies in the house and me not eating them is not one in my kitchen. It's one at the grocery store. Where I buy the cookies, that's where the real battle takes place. The battle is always at a different place than you think it is. And Satan sets those traps. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. So when we resist Satan, he must seek another time. When we don't resist, we give him more time to torment and trap us. And then it becomes even harder to resist the next temptation. I already ate three of them. What's the next row? Um, so... So temptations may fade slowly o over time, but, uh, but obedience is what's going to strengthen us in the battle. And the good news is when we fail, and we all do, God doesn't, there's more grace because God doesn't want to punish us and shame us, but he wants to forgive and restore us and strengthen us for the next battle. And there will be one coming. So James continues his description of the humble walk by commanding a deliberately cultivated fellowship. It's got to be purposeful. He says, draw near to God, followed by the promise that he will draw near to you. It would be so much easier to keep a daily quiet time with God if we only had a more vivid sense of his presence. But in, in other words, we want the promise to come before the command. But more grace is given to those who set their feet on the path of obedience. God enriches us with the glory of his presence when we obey his command to seek his presence. So 
Intimacy with God is impossible if we don't win the battle for regular Bible study, devotions, prayer, and worship. And we need to take full advantage of every opportunity we're given to draw near to God, knowing that God makes himself known. He's a rewarder of those who seek him. Well, what happens when we come near to a holy God? Well, like the prophet Isaiah, we become very aware of our sin. And we say, woe is me, I'm undone. That's why we don't sometimes want to seek God, because we don't want to deal with our sin. James tells us what to do. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Not only actions or deeds that are sinful have to be dealt with, but also motivations and intentions. And James again again condemns the double-minded or those who are two-faced with God while they're actually serving their own selfish desires. He makes it clear that it is the sinners who are responsible to cleanse their hands. We are to hoe out the weeds from our lives, clean up our conduct and our hearts. Earthly wisdom would suggest that as Christians, we must clean up our lives before we can draw near to God. James' logic is truly wisdom from above because you know what? When we know the reality of his presence, we become repulsed by our sin and we want to get it out of our lives. And God gives us more grace and we find ourselves motivated by the desire to be like Christ. And we see sin not merely as a bad habit, but as the odious obstacle to intimacy with the Lord that it is, and we want to kill it off. So the desire for a pure heart leads logically to a sorrow for sin. And verse 9 says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. The apostle Paul says that there is a sorrow that's according to the will of God that produces repentance without regret. You're not sorry you confessed your sins. You're not sorry you brought it to the Lord, and it leads to salvation. It leads to life. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So the truly penitent person grieves and mourns his sin because he understands that sin is not simply breaking a rule on a list. It's like committing adultery and breaking God's heart. And this is the grief that leads to healing. Blessed are those that mourn over their sin, for they shall be comforted. Well, finally, James says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. And there's a certain irony to this because humility is not something we can achieve through our own efforts. We can't humble ourselves up the spiritual ladder by our bootstraps. Humility, like faith, is not an achievement. It is not a human initiative, but it is a proper God-given response to God himself and his glory and his purposes. And we learn to humble ourselves when God brings trials into our lives and we realize that we can choose to follow the flesh, worldly wisdom, or the spirit of God. We don't teach ourselves to be humble. There's no 10-step plan for becoming humble next week or next month. But the humility test and the opportunity to learn it comes when we're confronted, unsettled, and accosted by God-ordained trials. It comes in the moments when our semblances of control vanish, we're taken off guard by life in a fallen world, and the question comes to us, how are you going to respond in these humbling circumstances? Are you going to humble yourself before God? Will you receive his humbling or are you going to resist it? Will you try to explain it away or kick against it? Or will it serve to produce genuine repentance in your heart? See, understand if you don't humble yourself, uh, further divine humbling will follow in time. Been there, done that. But, so the question is, how are you going to respond? Are you going to... uh, in defiance? Are you going to fight God kicking and screaming that life isn't fair? 
or by humbly submitting to the God of the universe who specifically created your trials as a good and perfect gift so that you could know him better. God has a particular promise for you in these moments. The God of all power will exalt you in his perfect timing because he gives more grace. Well, James has laid out a clear path for us based on wisdom from above that deals with the realities of our selfish and covetous hearts. It's only when we humble ourselves before God and obey his commands that our faith is proven to be genuine and intimate fellowship with God is possible. In verse 11, James switches to a practical emphasis for how genuine faith works in relation to other people and what we say about them. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges a brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. Now, James uses the Greek word kataleleo three times in verse 11. It means to defame or denigrate or speak evil of or slander someone. Now, you know what? A defamatory word could be perfectly true. Because we don't have to tell lies in order to defame someone or besmirch their character. But the fact that something is true gives us no right to say it. And when we talk down about someone, we adopt a superior position. And defamation is forbidden not as a breach of truth, but as a breach of humility and love. Because if we're truly humble before God, we have no lofty position from which to talk down about anyone. James reminds us three times that we're brothers and sisters. We're members of the same family. Before the foundation of the world, God chose us to be his children, and none of us earned our way into the kingdom. We were all adopted by the mercy and grace of God, and that puts us all on the same level. So when we speak against a brother, we actually speak evil against the law. First, we break the law which we were meant to obey. It commands love, and we respond with slanderous talk. Next, we set ourselves up as knowing better than the law uh, because we judge it. In effect, we say, well, the law is wrong because it commanded love. It should have commanded criticism. And if we were the lawgivers, that's exactly what it would say. So this puts us in the position of not being a doer of the law, but a judge, and we seek to usurp the authority of God himself. This leads to verse 12. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judges your neighbor? James says there's one lawgiver and judge. When we disobey the law, what are we doing in respect to the lawgiver? We're disputing his authority, and if that's not bad enough, God's law is not an arbitrary collection of precepts and commands. It's an expression of who and what he is. His, he, he gives us his commands in order that we would fashion our lives in his image and so that the life of God may be seen in our mortal bodies. So to disobey his law is to contradict him. It's to call him a liar. And to value our opinion above the law is to value ourselves above God. So uh, we... We take the, up a position to judge him, and we elbow him off the throne. So where now, I ask, is the humility and lowliness before God, which is the essence and key to heavenly wisdom? And it's to this point that James brings the discussion. Are you exalting yourself over other believers, or are you seeking to walk in the lowest humility possible with God? Because the humility in our relationships is only possible through God's grace, but it's another test of bona fide faith. 
Well, James next addresses the sin of presumption, which comes from a wrong understanding of ourselves in relation to our own lives and ambitions. It manifests itself through our speech or what we say to ourselves. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such such and such a city, spend a year there, engage in business, and make a profit. Well, why is this arrogant thinking? Well, we presume that we'll live as long as we please. We presume that we can make whatever plans we please. We can go today or tomorrow. We presume that we're masters of our destiny. We presume that we can carry out whatever plans we conceive just by saying so and doing it, and it will all happen according to plan. This sounds so very ordinary, so very American. What James is showing us is the unrecognized claim of our hearts. We speak to ourselves as if it's our right to live to a ripe old age. We think that our choices and preferences are the only deciding factor. We believe the modern psychobabble which says, if you can dream it, you can achieve it. As if we had in ourselves all that was needed to make a success of our endeavors. But James goes on to show us the folly of our presumptions. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. You're gone. First, he points out our ignorance. You don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. It is ridiculous to boast about plans a year from now when you have no idea what the next 24 hours hold. And this fact alone is enough to keep us before, humble before the God who created controls and apportioned times. One commentator said, in the Bible, the years do not circle. They go from a straight line from eternity to eternity. And on that line, we receive another day, neither by natural necessity, nor by mechanical law, nor by right, nor by courtesy of nature, but only by the covenanted mercies of God. The very existence of tomorrow is part of our dependence on him, as is our life itself. Well, next, James points out our frailty. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while. You know what? We're insubstantial, transient, and gone without a trace. And the Lord says that by the standards of eternity, our lives are as ephemeral as a mist. Now, James isn't trying to banish planning from our lives because even ants are cited as an example in Proverbs of wise planning because they store up food in the summer to last through the winter. But James is turning the spotlight on self-sufficient, self-important preparation that keeps God at an arm's length and is not dependent on him. The sin of presumption is a direct challenge to the life of humility before God because it involves taking into our own hands the reins of planning and command, and it involves seeing life as a continuing right rather than a daily mercy. So what is the proper attitude we need to have? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. You know, planning is entirely proper as long as we confess that God is sovereign and that we are frail, ignorant, and dependent on him. And the phrase... Lord willing is no magical incantation. Say it three times. You know, it's not that at all. And it doesn't even ensure our humility, but it should remind us that our plans and even our lives can evaporate like the mist. 
And James calls presumption for what it is. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Boasting about the future, all the great things you're going to do is not only proud and arrogant, it's evil. Satan, scripture calls Satan the evil one, and James uses the same word here. And you know what? When we forget how frail we are, when we live life without depending on God moment by moment, when we trust worldly wisdom, James says our arrogant self-sufficiency is evil. And we might consider it a small thing, a common feature of a busy life if we forget how dependent we are and act in mere self-will. But James sees it as the core of boastful pride, which is the mark and curse of fallen man. Well, as if the sin of arrogance is not enough, James then says, therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Yikes. Even our best accomplishments are insufficient because no one can ever fully do the good we ought to do. Now, if that doesn't drive you to despair, I don't know what will. And that is exactly the point. Neither you nor I can live the Christian life apart from humbling ourselves before the Lord because God gives grace to the humble. So quite a few tests, pretty challenging verses today. Lots to think about. Is your faith genuine? Is it genuine? Is it bona fide? Are there areas that you need to humble yourself and confess before the Lord and get things right? So a real challenge, this passage, for every single one of us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the challenge, and I thank you for the fact that you give grace and you give more grace and more grace, and we thank you for it. I pray that you would help us examine our lives and see where our faith is genuine, see where it's lacking, see where we need to hoe the weeds out of our lives, see where relationships are broken and need to be mended. I pray that we would take advantage of your word and be obedient to it. In Jesus' name, amen.